0: Welcome to Plenary Session. I'm Vinay Prasad. I'm an associate professor at the University of California, San Francisco. I'm a practicing he doctor and my interests are medicine, oncology, and health policy. And that's what you're gonna get on Plenary Session. This is season four and we're back. Oncology, medicine, health policy. We've got a lot in store for you. But first, a plug. If you like this podcast, leave us a rating or write us a review it helps new listeners find the show you can follow us on twitter at plenary underscore session you can email us at plenary session at gmail.com give us your suggestions on what we should be covering and we got a new youtube channel vinay prasad md mph follow us on youtube i'm putting up a 10-part series on reading and interpreting cancer clinical trials you'll want to watch it there and if you really love this show you can back us on patreon.com Patreon backers get access to slides for lectures I give on Plenary Session. And with that, let's start the show. Back by popular demand, the great Zeb Yamrozik. Zeb, it is a pleasure to have you back here on the show.
1: Thanks, Vinay. It's great to be back.
0: I should introduce you yet again for the few people who don't know who you are. You're an ID ethicist, infectious disease ethicist. You're a practicing internist, and you're based in Australia in the great city of Melbourne. The most yeah, locked down is it you or Hong Kong that's the most locked down city in the world? Uh,
1: I'm not sure who's the head right now, but we were certainly locked down for about eight and a half months, hmm. um, 37 weeks, just 37 weeks to flatten the
0: curve. <laughs> just 37 weeks to flatten the curve. Interesting. Um, the one thing I have to say, which I was telling you beforehand was we previously recorded a um, dialogue like this. I put it on YouTube and it really went crazy. People really enjoyed listening to your perspective, which is, I think is a, a perspective of a Uh, of a true ID ethicist and somebody who's been in this business for quite some time who has really sort of a historical perspective as well. Um, Why do you think it resonated so much?
1: Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, this is certainly kind of my area of expertise, Um, but also sometimes, you know, it was great to have a a longer conversation and to talk about things in some more detail because often we don't kind of get to the bottom of some of the issues that are going on. And like you say, the, the history of things, what's happened previously and, Um, kind of how science and ethics can be mixed up together. And so it's good to talk about both of those at the same time.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's really what struck a chord with so many people. And the other thing I'll say as prelude is I want to apologize to the listeners. I have was, was accused, rightly so, of uh, stepping on your words and not letting you get enough time to speak. And I do that. I do that. It's a bad habit of mine. Um, it happens only when the person I'm talking with has gotten me so excited uh, and so enthusiastic. And so it's not out of malice. It's out of love. Uh, but I apologize. And that's why, also why I wanted to have you back.
1: Yeah, you know, it's fine. Feel free to jump in any time, and uh, I'm going to take notes in case there's uh, some points I
0: forget. <laughs> this time, no more jumping in. I'm going to do better. Okay, so here's what I wanted to ask you. Number one, I recently saw um, the dean of a public health school uh, say that um, you know, focused protection was always a bad idea. And so if I were to articulate, I think in the summer or fall of 2020, there were two prevailing schools of thought. One was the only way to deal with a pandemic, this pandemic, were, were restrictions that were one size fits all that affects everybody. Um, there could not be any tailoring. It had to be we all locked down. Because why? Because you can't let virus spread through some community. You can't let it spread through school kids and just lock down adults. That doesn't make sense. You either have to stop it all or let it all go. Um, there was another school of thought I think embodied by the Great Barrington Declaration and Martin Kultzdorf and Jay Bhattacharya, um, who, who wrote that and many of the signatories, which was that we could, we ought to be able to do more um, given that the age gradient is a, you know, 1,000, 10,000-fold difference in risk of death. We ought to do more for those more vulnerable. We can do less for those less vulnerable. We can have some functioning society. We can balance these things. We can have quote-unquote focused protection. This public health dean said that was always wrong. Um, I guess I'm curious as to your point of view, was it a crazy idea? Was it? How does it fit into your thinking?
1: Yeah, well, I guess yeah. Um, uh, to say that kind of protecting those more vulnerable more than the less vulnerable people is wrong—that um, seems like a, a bit too hasty to say, that, to <laughs> say the least. And you know, it's worth noting that you know we kind of we do focus protection to some degree all the time. In the sense that hospital settings have more infection control and prevention than general community settings uh, in most cases. Uh, and it can be incredibly strict inside of hospital, you know, kind of zero tolerance policies for the transmission of infection and so on. And it's also where part of the reason we do that is because there's vulnerable people there in hospital um, who stand to be harmed more. And uh, the benefits of the intervention are often higher as a result, uh, not to mention that you have kind of staff, you know, well-trained staff who can do those interventions well. Um, and so we're always doing, you know, a form of focus protection for, for vulnerable individuals. Um, And I guess we do that in other ways in the community. Um, But, you know, I think we also, one thing is we have to look at the facts and the other thing is we have to look at the ethics. So, I mean, the facts are that, you know, in Canada, I'm sure you've seen that study, I forget which province it was of Canada, but they implemented a really uh, intensive, um, basically focused protection program for nursing homes. And they dramatically reduced the overall mortality from COVID in nursing homes Mm. in the first wave in Canada. And so that really, and they collected data on it, which was great. And they really showed that it could be done. Um, And so I think it's just a fact that it could, that it can be done. Uh, Of course, it's more difficult in kind of more chaotic societies and, you know, maybe in parts of America, uh, maybe there's not as much coordination of kind of public health services and everything's kind of single institutions and maybe it's more difficult there, uh, but it certainly can be done. Uh, And then ethically speaking, well, I think, uh, you know, again, I talked last time about the key values in public health being health but also fairness and freedom and you know one of the key things about health is well there's both benefits and harms of an intervention and uh if we are you know locking someone down keeping them quarantined and isolated at home uh well that's a really potentially quite harmful intervention in many ways including by restricting liberty um but so we should really try to do that only when it's justified by the public health benefits. So it might be justified if you're infected with COVID and you're very infectious and you stand to infect other people, Um, but it might also be justified when you're a vulnerable individual. So you stand to benefit more from being protected. Um, Of course, we need to be able to make sure you can be safe at home, have various kind of resources provided to you uh, and so on. Um, But also there's the issue of fairness. So if we implement blanket interventions where everyone has to suffer, uh, and everyone has to suffer more or less equally, mm-hmm. you know, which is what some forms of lockdown are. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, then that's going to have a net harm on young, healthy people. Mm-hmm. That's much greater than the kind of harms, net harms to older people. In fact, older people might benefit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so just in terms of kind of fairness across the population, yeah, ethically speaking, that might be even a, a superior approach if it can be done well. That's
0: really well stated. Yeah. Um I thought the two things I thought that made it to me sort of an incoherent argument, one was that uh, at least 50% of the casualties in the first eight or 10 months in this country were in nursing homes. You cannot possibly tell me there was nothing better you could have done there. You could have had paid extra money to have a staff live on site as the original residents were, you know, have a tent they can live there, uh, and then substitute out every two weeks, uh, and then have, you know, sort of a checkpoint in, checkpoint out, so that they could minimize uh, nosocomial spread. You could have done on so many things there that's one two any country that continued to keep elementary schools running while doing well while doing lockdown on other parts of society that is a focus protection because it's the focus is not on the elementary school kids because we're doing we're not we're taking the pressure off some things so to me it's sort of incoherent that it was a one size fits all thing and then the last point that i was thinking was you know i i read pandemic guidance from 10 years ago it was not even entertained as a possibility that one could shut down like this it was not an option um I wonder, had we not seen those videos out of Wuhan, if Western civilization would have even entertained the idea.
1: Well, yeah, many people, prominent people, have said that. You know, Neil Ferguson in the UK said if if China hadn't have done that, we wouldn't have done it. Um, Some senior leaders in public health leaders in Australia said the same thing. I think that's true. Um, You know, people say there was no lockdown in public health pandemic planning documents, and that's true. Mm -hmm. But. you know, there, there was the idea that you could shut down non-essential businesses, but it was always as a temporary measure during the very peak of transmission to, you know, so-called flatten the curve. That was where this two weeks of flatten the curve idea came in. And all of those documents said that, you know, school closures should be a last resort right. because, you know, we shouldn't be harming children. It has knock-on effects on families. Um, children are often, you know, even for influenza, which you know, can harm young children. Uh, they're often not at greatest risk of pandemic pathogens, um, so yeah, I think uh, things did change dramatically from what those documents said. And just just to go back to what you said about where all where many of the deaths were, it's absolutely right that in most um, high-income country, wealthy, older populations in the world, you know, something like thirty to fifty percent of deaths often in that first wave were in uh, nursing homes. And I think this also captures one way in which. The metric that we choose uh, to judge a response also contains kind of ethical values. So once you say we're going to try and prevent COVID deaths, on the one hand, deaths is a really good metric because everyone can agree that it's important. um, It's easy to measure. Um, On the other hand, if we're going to be trying to lower COVID deaths, well, they're predominantly almost all occurring in people over 50, many of them in people over 70 or 80 and in older populations, and as soon as you decide that's the metric we're going to use, and cases is even worse, obviously, but as soon as you decide death is the metric you're going to use, that means you're going to prioritise the interests mm-hmm. of older people over younger people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we can very quickly get down this kind of train where, and we've seen this in many places in the world, where the interests of young people are really sacrificed uh, in order to save older people. And again, that's a you know, major issue of fairness and one that we're going to see the effects of uh, you know, a generation, if not more.
0: I see. You're saying like, um, let's just take for the sake of argument, and I don't know this to be empirically true, but for the sake of argument, if all colleges and universities closed for one year, um, we would save, for the sake of argument, a thousand people's lives were over the age of 80, hypothetically. Um, the question would be, how does one weigh those two coins? The coin of potentially a million, four million uh, college kids, I don't know how many million, maybe four million college kids giving up a year of being a college kid. With all that that means for their growth, their development, getting married, having kids, you know, their lives, I don't know, their whole future, whatever that means. I don't know. It's one year. It's not that it's not life. You know, it's one year you can hold your breath. But, you know, it's one year. I don't know. Uh, Versus, you know, 1,080 year old deaths. And I guess those are very different coins. And I don't know. I don't know how to equate the two.
1: Yeah, that's right. And I mean, that's a complex uh, ethical question that also needs good data and so on. You know, some of that you can do with qualitative data. You can ask people, well, how much worse is your quality of life under yes. lockdown or or not being able to go to school and so on? And then you can multiply that over the entire population. You know, when we're talking about lockdowning whole lo- locking down whole cities, that's millions of people whose quality of life has been in some cases dramatically reduced. And um, people are uncomfortable with the idea that there are trade-offs between deaths and other outcomes. But in public health policy, we have to make those trade-offs all the time. Um, and, you know, we can't optimize for everything. And there might be a situation in which we're causing more harm with our interventions that could even outweigh the number of kind of, you know, lives that we were going to save or the number of life years lost by those older people who die. Um, And so I think those are complex questions where we need to have really good data, uh, and then we need to have, you know, a conversation as a society about, you know, what we're willing to tolerate. And importantly, we need to be able to have a way of, Stopping those interventions, eventually. So it's not about not only about the justification of starting the interventions, but also stopping them. And like you say, early on in the pandemic, uh, very quickly we got going with these mass population interventions. Uh, and then some in some places, it, more than others, it was kind of difficult to to talk about when to when to switch them off. Partly because people would say, "But some people will die." But of course, people are going to die um, from something either way.
0: Yeah. No, I think you put out a good solution, which is the quality quality adjusted life year and I guess you know for some of us uh you know lockdown year is not as bad 0.95 quality as a regular year but perhaps for a 20 year old many 0.6 I don't know 0.7 it's up to them you know I don't decide um let me ask you this question I just read an article it was in the Atlantic it's by Alexis Madrigal and it's very interesting I don't know if you saw this this is an article of how even though he was double vaxxed even though he did everything right for 18 months he got sick and it said something like you know, I think he's around my age. He's like, I'm 38. He's I think he's 39-year-old. He's described himself as an elite athlete. Um, he was invited to a wedding, um, and the wedding was far from his home. And I hope I'm doing a good job of paraphrasing this because I just read this article a few weeks. I just read it quickly. Um, uh, And it basically was, he wore his N95 on the plane. He went all the way there. He took all the appropriate precautions. Whenever he felt he was in a situation that felt a little, mm, you know, questionable about it. Could somebody be there with COVID-19? You know, he tried to back away from those situations, but nevertheless, he went to the wedding. Um, You know, he had a drink, he started to have a good time. uh, And then lo and behold, you know, he came back and he had found himself with a breakthrough, a breakthrough infection of SARS-CoV-2. And um, I don't know, I guess, what is the lesson? I guess, uh, I'm curious, you know, I guess, and then he had to, you know, he quarantined separate from his, wife and kids, and uh, he had to keep taking tests, and he refused, you know, he won't, even though he's symptomatically recovered, as long as his antigen is positive, he's not going back home, and it's been 10 days, and obviously, the family has to quarantine, and they have to be pulled from their schools, and their work, and etc., so it's hugely disruptive to their lives, um, and I imagine, I get the current that there's regret, and and you know, this feeling, and, and this is not the only anecdote, I've read so many stories about people who feel like, I did everything right, and why me, why is this happening to me, um, uh, you know, this is the failure of the unvaccinated. It's your, you know, you did it, You did this to me. You got me, you know. Um, I guess I'm curious how you would counsel such a, I mean, if, somebody, if this happened to somebody you knew, I mean, what would you tell them? How, how, how do you interpret this anecdote?
1: Yeah, I mean, part of it is kind of like how I would handle that as a doctor, which is that whenever patients come to me with that kind of thing, I feel so guilty and so on. I say, well, it's not your fault. Um, and when it comes to infectious diseases, there's a very long history over thousands of years to moralise infectious disease transmission. Uh, people, you know, used to think of it as a marker of sin that you got infected, mm-hmm. uh, that you haven't behaved in a morally upright kind of way. But mm-hmm. the reality is that if we want to live with other human beings um, and animals, in some cases, uh, we're going to catch infectious diseases, and we shouldn't um, moralise uh, being infected with, with a disease uh, for a couple of reasons. Um, you know, one is that Uh, often the chance of you getting infected, well, well, the first reason is that just to interact with other people gives you a risk and you you just have to accept that risk. So that's one reason. Um, Otherwise, we can't have a society. Uh, It's for certain diseases anyway. The second reason is that almost every infectious disease um, is unfairly spread across the population. So poor people, uh, people living in kind of overcrowded environments and so on, are much more likely to get infected. And um, so if we start moralizing that people get infected, often we're blaming people for something that isn't really their fault, you know, for being, mm-hmm. for being poor, for living in a certain kind of community and so on, and that can lead to very bad stigma at the individual and the group level. And the third reason that we shouldn't moralize um, uh, infection, especially for mm-hmm. SARS-CoV-2, is that as far as i can tell it's inevitable that everyone's going to get infected sooner rather than later and, and i think this is one thing that people have taken a very long time to understand um you know when you when you uh when you read the first um uh, discussions with uh experts about how many people are going to get infected with this virus mm-hmm. you know there's some prominent kind of claims about that i think mark lipsitch from harvard who's a mm-hmm. super smart guy mm-hmm. uh, came out and said i think around 70 percent of the global yeah. population is going to get infected but What he was thinking there is what the models tell you for a disease that produces sterilizing immunity, which is you hit this kind of threshold uh, and then it can fade away. Mm -hmm. But that's not what I thought at the time. And and speaking with infectious disease colleagues of mine and looking back at the last hundred years of pandemics, Mm -hmm. what we saw is that, well, every single new virus that comes and gets established as a pandemic, becomes endemic. Uh, and unless we were really lucky and we got a vaccine that produced sterilizing infection that could p- completely prevent you from getting infected, well, then it's inevitable from my point of view that if you don't die first, the whole world's population is eventually going to get infected with this virus. And the sooner we accept that, the better, because if people are going to feel so, so guilty uh, for getting infected when they're <laughs> already fully vaccinated and so on, I think we, we've got a real problem and it's, and it's not just a scientific problem, it's a, it's a social problem.
0: I agree with you so much, and that's why my, you know, my thinking on this issue is, and this may sound perverse, but you know, you you have a choice. Either you decide you don't want to go to such weddings forever, forever, um, or if you go, then I struggle to see what's the rationale of wearing the N95 on the plane. What's the rationale of uh, not going to the the extra nightclub after the event? I mean, you're going to encounter this virus. Maybe not this year. Maybe not next year. But hopefully while you're still young <laughs> before you're before you're an old man because that's when it's gonna be roughest to get it again um you know you can boost all you want i suspect that that's not going to generate sterilizing immunity because you know i don't think the third is doses the charm um so I, I i i think i hear the anecdote and i see why someone might conclude i ought not have gotten gone to that wedding but i think that the reverse interpretation might be right which is after you got vaccinated maybe you should have gone to that wedding sooner um you know, you missed out on six months of weddings and this was going to happen anyway. Um, You want to miss out on two years of weddings and then it's going to happen in the the third year. Um, I wanted to ask you a question about this. Vaccine mandates for kids to go to school and if they don't go to school, they get thrown out of school. I just saw in um, a U.S. publication. This is something that literally is happening in California, in Los Angeles. Under EUA, if you're 12 and older, you have to get two doses, I think by the end of this calendar year. Um, and the rules are written in such a way, there's no flexibility. This boy, 12 year old boy, is gonna get two doses and they gotta get it within, they can't let the time between the two doses get too far, because then they won't meet the cutoff and they'll be thrown out of school. And the next piece of data I saw is this is rock solid data that black people have a lower rate, black teens have a lower rate of vaccination than whites, who have a lower rate than Asians. And it was like 60-some percent, 87 percent whites, 95 percent Asians. And the governor of California said, well, once these vaccines are approved, they will be mandatory for school. And now we're in 5 to 11. That, that still hasn't been a, you know, fought about yet. But my concern is this. We may very well be in a situation by the winter time of this year that we're going to throw out kids. Those kids will be more black kids per capita than white kids. Um, from public school because they refuse to get a vaccine. Um, not refuse; they they have chosen not to. Um, what are the ethics of this? What are your thoughts on this policy? Is this what a progressive should do? <laughs> Leading you question, know, I guess.
1: <laughs> yeah. So um, that sounds to me incredibly tragic, and it's it's almost it's hard to believe that things could get worse uh, for you know young children uh, from, you know, marginalized communities and so on than they already are after two years of this. Um, but yeah, to take a step back, I mean, just mandates in general, yes, uh, okay. the standard, the standard view in bioethics is that they should be a last resort and they should be a last resort because it's a major restriction on Liberty. Uh, it's an invasion of bodily integrity to, you know, take a, take a medicinal product. Um, and also, you know, it can lead to major backlash. Uh, you know, people get very angry when things get mandated, you push people out of society, uh, like I think you said last time. Um, and so, you know, as, as compliance is increasing, you kind of, um, your marginal benefit from vaccinating more people from forcing them to get vaccinated is going down and the harms of various kinds are increasing. Um, and I think, you know, the case for, first of all, the case for vaccinating children is, especially, is not especially strong. Uh, because this is not a virus that's especially dangerous to children despite there being a few you know cases where, where infection can be severe and despite the, the dangers to um, children with comorbidities, and it's absolutely you know appropriate for them to be vaccinated. Um, but as we just said, uh, you know this isn't the kind of thing we're going to eliminate with vaccines the same the way we might with measles. Um, and so and and also that the harms of these vaccines are non-trivial. Um, you know, the, like the myocarditis risks, in adolescent boys, in particular, are extremely high, um, or at least compared to kind of the standard vaccines that we use. Um, I, we just don't have enough data on younger children, five to eleven year olds. I have no idea uh, what what the kind of uh, harms are there because we don't have enough data, and the benefits are certainly going to be incredibly small. Mm-hmm. And so it's hard, you know. I can see how we could we might be able to offer those vaccines, but there's a big difference between offering or recommending, and Universally mandating, mm-hmm. and then even mandates, there can be a, a range of restrictions on liberty. You can mandate, but you can, um, you know, not enforce it too much. But if you're going to mandate to the point where you're going to throw people out of school, not allow exemptions, and so on, then you know, my prediction is that that's something we'll live to regret for lots of reasons, um, and it's certainly not justified based on the science or kind of you know standard ethical principles. And it seems to me like the interest that we have in uh, making sure that everyone has access to education, especially those who can't afford private education and need to be in the public system, we have a huge social interest in ensuring that that happens. And to push people out uh, for this tiny benefit of a vaccine, if there even is a benefit in, in, the, in the younger age groups. Um, yeah, my view is that that's, that's a really bad idea.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I wrote uh, an op-ed on how the vaccine mandate for attending public school in L.A., uh, I called it a draconian punishment to these kids who have already been, I think, cruelly deprived of 18 months of in-person education, and I published that in, um, I think, U.S. News and World Report. And then I had another op-ed on how it literally just tells parents that parents who are thinking about vaccinating their 5 to 11-year-old should be counseled that among their options, it is okay to wait. You could do it now, but it's okay to take some time and learn some more safety data. And I will tell you, even that idea, it's okay to wait, is so infuriating, so difficult to publish, I must be honest with you. Even though I, my argumentation is rock solid and not, you know, the, the, the I get a lot of grief, but very rarely do people actually go through my uh, paper and actually show that there's anything wrong with it. They can talk about whatever they want to talk about. They're not talking about what's wrong with it because there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, it's a rock solid argument. Um, of course it's okay to wait. Of course, are <laughs> you out of your mind? And I, pu- but I've, I got it published in uh, US um, USA Today. So I guess um, one thing I wanted to say on this issue was the randomized control trial of kids five to eleven. As an, I mean, here's my question for you. When I read the FDA briefing document to support authorization in that age group, there was something that I found persuasive, which was their seven models or their multiple part modeling. And that modeling basically says, you know, let's assume this vaccine has the same efficacy, vaccine efficacy um, in this age group as it does in other age groups. Let's assume it'll do the same thing for hospitalization that it does to other other age groups. Um, What might the benefits and harms be? Let's assume that the rate of myocarditis in kids 5 to 11 is the same as 12 to 15. For 12 to 15, we're going to use Optum, a national insurer database to get that estimate. That estimate was 1 in 5,700, I believe, which is actually a little bit more frequent than the controversial you know than the the misinformation that's out there, right? But this is this yeah. is a, you know this is the FDA's Optum database. That that's been Okay, let's put that aside. Um Okay, they use that data point, they use the hospitalizations from prior, and then they use the rate of SARS-CoV-2 spread from different periods of time. And they come up with several models. And the point I wanted to make was every single model parameter did not rely on the pivotal trial data. The pivotal trial did not contribute to any of the model parameters because the pivotal trial is just too small. It's too small to show a reduction in severe COVID. It's too small to show a reduc- to show any myocarditis. It's too small to show any efficacy on a meaningful endpoint besides the acquisition of, you know, very mildly symptomatic COVID-19, which is the primary endpoint of the study. Uh, now, the primary endpoint of the study is a geometric mean titer antibody titer, not if you against benchmark. You know, it's a ludicrous primary. Okay, this is... Um, I guess my question is this. I feel like there, you have a choice. Either you wanted to approve this vaccine, in which case you should have done it three months ago, authorize it, because, or it, you need a randomized control trial measuring things you care about, in which case you need to keep accruing patients. You need 100,000 people in each arm. But what you've done now is a seeding trial. The trial is a seeding trial. It gives the illusion we have knowledge. There's no power for any knowledge to come from this. Um, and you're you're really making the decision based on information you already had. So the people who wanted the option they should be angry that you uh, you delayed for no good reason, and the people who wanted more information should be angry that you're not actually getting that. Uh, I think everyone should be angry at this. This is, but but of course, it, that's not the narrative. So what are your thoughts?
1: Well, yeah. So I mean, as a re- as a research ethicist, yeah, I mean, that brings to the fore how there there are all these ethical um, aspects of how we design research. You know, one of them is what endpoint do you choose, and uh, you know, I'm I'm interested in an endpoint that involves harm, you know, <laughs> at least symptomatic disease, if not hospitalization. Yeah. And all these studies that have been using antibodies or aerosols or you know, um, mm. you know dummies instead of humans and so on, they aren't producing endpoints. They aren't looking at endpoints that I'm interested in. Um, and you know, we should be ethically interested in endpoints that involve harm and reducing harm by our interventions. The second is yeah, how many how many people do you need to, need to involve to actually get useful information? And of course, in this situation where the disease is so mild, you're going to need, as you say, hundreds of thousands of people. Otherwise, you're just not getting any information at all, and and you're making science into a charade. Um, and and in a normal in any normal year, where the, where everyone wasn't so kind of politically um, excited about this, we would be doing a very large trial and, and seeing what happens. Um, and yeah, it's hard. To, and and especially in children i mean it's always been the case that because of so many scandals in the past where you know products weren't adequately vetted for children and then caused unexpected harm it's always been the case that we're especially careful um before authorizing and widely using things in children and i I don't see any reason why it should be different here in fact there's an even stronger case Mm -hmm. because the virus isn't that
0: i think yeah I mean, no matter what happens, I feel like we're going to be a loser. Here's why. If things go swimmingly and this vaccination campaign has no uh, untoward safety effects, and actually, maybe myocarditis is better because it's mostly a post-pubescent issue, and maybe these kids do just fine with this, Um, if things go swimmingly, then I think they will be more and more appetite to debut products in children with less and less data, which is not good for us in the long run. And... The flip side of it is, if things don't go swimmingly, if we find any safety signal that we didn't anticipate, if we find anything that may tip this calculus, particularly in kids who have natural immunity already, who again we're full through we full court press on vaccinating them too, even though that has a huge more scientific questions. But if there's anything that comes out of this that is unanticipated or negative, it will have it will be a nuclear bomb in the vaccine field. It will ob- it will be d- it'll be done. I mean, you think you've had hesitancy before? You will have obliterated it for a hundred years there will be widespread chaos. It will be the most divisive issue. Um, it will create political turmoil. It'll be an issue people vote about. It will be, uh, you, uh, at, the po- at the I can't even imagine how big an issue this will be, it'll be explosive. Um.
1: That's right, and you know, as I've said before, one of the most important things, values in public health uh, is trust or one of the most important resources. And harming children is, a, is a, a very fast way to undermine trust. And I've written about this previously with, for example, the dengue vaccine that was mm-hmm. debuted in the Philippines Uh, You know, they knew that there were potential harms to children. Uh, There was maybe a net population benefit. But then when they'd given it to 800,000 children and then then it became obvious that some of them were being harmed, vaccine confidence in the Philippines plummeted um, for all kinds of vaccines. People stopped taking all kinds of vaccines. There were outbreaks of measles and so on. Um, So, yeah, this is an area where we need to be extremely careful. And in my view, we're not being careful enough. And the last thing we should do is lower the uh, lower the bar for regulatory approval for products in children.
0: Hmm. I wanted to ask you about trust. One of the things about trust is uh, what counts as truth and fiction. Recently, I see the CDC director, that's our CDC director, making the claim that even after vaccination, wearing a mask, and she didn't specify what kind, so I'm assuming she means the only mask that they've ever advocated for in their guidelines, which is any mask at all, including a cloth mask, she says it will reduce your risk of getting SARS-CoV-2 by eighty percent. Um, so it's actually better than Johnson and Johnson. It's I don't I know that I didn't have the news to me. It's exceeding J and J. I mean, it was neck and neck with J and J. What I mean, what am I doing to make of such a claim um, at a time where everyone's getting their posts removed for misinformation? This is this stands strong.
1: Yeah. So. Um I think based on the data we have, the idea that masks are as effective as vaccines or as important to the public health response to this virus is clearly false, (laughs) you know. I haven't seen any data that would suggest that. And um, while we're in that situation, yeah, we shouldn't be exaggerating the data that we have and, um, yeah, senior leaders need to be telling the truth and this has been a problem since the very beginning of the pandemic. Uh, because uh, when people find out that it's not truthful or it's not based on solid facts and so on, then they're not going to trust what you say the next time. Um, and it also leaves us with no way uh, no way of getting out of this. Um, you know, if you've lied to people uh, about the efficacy of an intervention and then you try and switch it off, well, then people say, we can't possibly do that because you said it was so great. Um, hmm. And that comes to yeah, something I, something I want to talk about, which is the, the, the abuse of the precautionary principle yeah, uh, about in, it, in yeah. this pandemic. You know, the precautionary principle, there's many versions of that principle, but the basic idea is that when something we do uh, might cause harm, and that harm could be serious or irreversible, um, as, even if there's some uncertainty about that harm, we should be extremely careful and you know, cautious and maybe not implement that in- intervention until we have more data. And so the one important point there is that it's about something we do when you're implementing something, that's when the precautionary principle really applies most strongly. Mm-hmm. And so you might think if we were going to do something like um, close schools for a year, you know, uh, you know, lock down, lock down, for many months at a time with enormous kind of harms uh, that we're they're not we're not certain about those harms, <laughs> but, but they could potentially be enormous. Well, that's where the precautionary principle would tell us maybe you shouldn't do that. It you know? cuts, it
0: cuts um, the other way.
1: Yeah, that's right. Maybe you shouldn't do that. Maybe you should at the very least collect data about the benefits and harms that are involved here. But instead in this pandemic, from very early on, people were using some kind of upside down version of the precautionary principle, uh, which was, they said, uh, maybe this virus is even more dangerous than it appears. You know, people said it could be 1918 flu. It was never going to be 1918 flu. You read the very first data in February, 2020 out of China, it was perfectly obvious. It was not going to be 1918 flu because the mortality risks in young people weren't high enough. Um, but people said, oh, we have to be cautious about this virus. It could do anything. We're still learning about it. And so all bets are off. Any intervention is justified in the face of this kind of you know, highly uncertain risk. And that's not the that's not the precautionary principle I'm, I'm familiar with. And it's led to implementing interventions without evidence. And so effectively uh, rejecting the null hypothesis. So assuming that your interventions work before you have any evidence that they do, mm-hmm. Uh, and this claim that masks reduced by 80 percent, yeah, I mean that's that's an example of, you know, making some making some assumptions uh, based on, you know, we don't really have studies that show that in any meaningful way. And once you do that, uh, then when someone says, I want to study this intervention, and people say, Oh, you couldn't possibly study it; it would be unethical to study it because we know that it's beneficial. Uh, but not only, you know, importantly, not only is it is it ethical to do that research, to do a randomized control trial of major interventions that we're implementing on billions of people, <laughs> it's not only ethical to do that, it's super important. Uh, there's a strong ethical case to do that. Mm-hmm. One is because, you know, we're implementing this so widely and so it's really important to know what the benefits and harms are. If it's really beneficial, we need to implement it really well. Mm-hmm. If it's harmful, we need to address those harms.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And the second reason uh, is that, if it's mandated, if we're not if we're not just implementing the intervention, we're forcing people to use it. Well, then there's an even stronger ethical case to do research to make sure we really we really know what we're talking about.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And until we do know what we're talking about, it's better to it's better to be clear with the public. I think and say we're not sure. So if, say for example, in the post-vaccine era, mm-hmm. we're not sure how much extra benefit masks provide. You know, right. I, think be, I think that would be an honest assessment of the evidence. And they certainly provide less absolute benefit than they did in the pre-vaccination era, or whatever it was then. Um, and, but you might say, oh, but in high-risk situations, we still want you to wear them, or when there's an epidemic, we still want you to wear them, or in winter, I don't know, you could say something like that, but at least be honest about where that's coming from. It's coming from a situation of uncertainty and say, and we're going to collect data to make sure that the benefits outweigh the harms. Yeah, I think that would be a much fairer way to proceed, especially now
0: that's so well said you know i keep telling people you know when they, they try to tell me how um you know i wrote that thing in january got a lot of views which is about um you know after you get vaccinated throw away the mask um and uh there, there are many lines of argument in that uh one was the at the absolute risks of getting you know uh uh spreading the virus after is, is very low and the other line of argument was you know you don't really know the effect size of masking pre-vaccine it's certainly a diminuted post-vaccine it's smaller um and, you know, many people were like, oh, you know, you turn out to be wrong about that. And I was like, was I wrong about that? Actually, I don't think I was. Actually, I think I was right about that. It's going back that has led to a lot of problems. And if you want to prove it to me, do a cluster randomized trial of vaccinated people and show me what the delta is unmasking. I'll tell you what the upper bound delta could be. Uh, you know, Bangladesh is 076 one, of one, you know, 0.76 to one percent to 0.67 to one percent with a surgical mask. That's a surgical mask in an unvaccinated population with no natural immunity and no vaccination. Now yeah. you give me the absolute risk reduction uh, in a vaccinated population with a cloth mask. Get the hell out of here. It's going to be way smaller than that if it's even measurable. I mean, next thing you know, your power calc is randomized twenty million people, and then you have an answer already. Um, you know, but. Uh, yeah, so I mean,
1: I yeah. I, I agree. My, my priors on how effective masks are in vaccinated populations, what absolute benefit you get, is going to be exceedingly small, um, and anything, you know, yeah. there, there might even be harms, not just yeah. the harms of the cost of masks, environmental pollution, and you know, the harms of you know people needing to see each other's faces and so on. Um, but also, if masks do anything, uh, then you know, uh, suppressing kind of the transmission of viruses is not necessarily a good thing. You know, in the case in the case of COVID nineteen. It's hard to say to the public that, um, you know, maybe since everyone's going to get infected, even vaccinated people, there might be a time where it's more optimal to get infected. You might want to get infected relatively shortly after your peak immunity from vaccination, and that might give you the best long-term protection. But, you know, partly because we've moralized um, infection Mm -hmm. um, and partly because people have denied uh, post-infection immunity for a long time, That's become an impossible or I think a very difficult sell to the public. So, yeah, not only should you take off your mask, but, you know, it might be in people's interests to get infected at a certain time, because that might provide better protection in future, given that we're probably all going to get infected over and over again with this virus, at least based on the data that we have now.
0: Before the antibodies Um, have waned fully. Yeah, that's a very interesting point. And the other point would be we would want to get infected, not all at the same time, spread it out a little bit so that the hospital can take care of the the small fraction of people that are still going to present. yeah, that,
1: that, that, that's right. And that, and that gets to a wider point about, yeah. um, you know, a different kind of outcome of herd immunity. So a lot of people think that herd immunity is this threshold thing where the virus disappears. But that, that's a really simplistic idea from models of particular types of pathogens. But for this type of virus, what I would expect is going to be the outcome of herd immunity is a so-called endemic equilibrium, uh, that mm. the, the virus and the immunity are going to be finely balanced in the population, that eventually will have kind of seasonal epidemics in winter and so on. Um, And if you look around over the last uh, two years, we've disrupted those equilibrium for all kinds of other viruses. We've disrupted Mm -hmm. it for influenza, RSV and so on, meaning that there's much less immunity, much less herd immunity to all those viruses out there in populations in the world. Um, And in Australia, there's one of the first places we saw this, when those viruses come back, when RSV comes back, you get a huge rebound epidemic. Right. Right. And the worst case scenario in the post-pandemic period would be, like you say, if we lined everything up. Right. You know, if you if, you, if you have these, uh, you know, suppression over summer or whatever, and then in winter we suddenly have an epidemic of uh, COVID in mostly vaccinated people, influenza, RSV, all at the same time. I mean, that, that's potentially a disaster. And and I think it, it reveals the kind of the limitations of this technocratic aspect, a te- technocratic kind of approach to pandemics that if we just like do enough interventions, we can control everything. But any time that humans say we can beat nature, you know, we can beat evolution, uh, we can stop these viruses forever. We've got to think, hold on, hold on a moment. You <laughs> know, that, that didn't turn out to be right before. Mm-hmm. Um, and often it can lead to, yeah, a rebound. It can make things worse rather than better in the long term. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I'm worried about... Um, continuing too many interventions for too long because the harms of those are starting to add up, Um, not to mention the harms, the kind of non-infectious harms of disrupting our healthcare system and and so on. So I think really public health needs to to go back to thinking about the long term. We need to go back to thinking about all public health outcomes, infectious diseases, non-infectious diseases, mental health, physical health, um, in addition to those values, And also, I mean, I would argue we need to think about the global level, um, because at the global level, you know, the effects on poor communities globally of what we've done as a global society, primarily to protect older adults. And most of those people live in rich countries, you know, has been major disruptions in tuberculosis, HIV and malaria programs, which collectively kill those, those diseases, kill millions of people every year. Uh, You know, uh, disruption of other vaccine programs, probably an increase in antimicrobial resistance, uh, not to mention, you know, 10 million more child marriages and so on, Mm -hmm. you know, mass, mass poverty. Mm -hmm. Uh, Those are all costs Mm -hmm. of what we've done. And those public health problems, they're not going, you know, the the infectious ones, just for an example, they're not going away. Mm -hmm. Um, And the longer we neglect them while we're looking at a single virus. Ah, uh, the worst thing the worst things are going to be in the long term, and 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 those harms are going to be felt most keenly by the people who can least afford to bear them. Uh, and i'm I'm really keen to see public health to go back to thinking in that way.
0: All those things you have enumerated are why I uh, believe that the pendulum will swing on a lot of these issues. I remember distinctly, and this is not an analogy. This is just an analogy about how pendulums swing. Let's let us let the audience can settle down already. Um, uh, but what I was going to say is, you know, I remember, you know, I, I, was, I was in college on 9-11. I remember the, the, the burning smoke from the buildings, the first building, second building. You know, it was only the second building that you knew it's an act of terror. And then the buildings collapsed. Um, I'd always thought that that was going to be the defining moment of the, 20th, the 21st century. You know, it, it changed everything. I mean, at least changed 20 years of po- policy. It launched two wars, um, both of which misdirected, uh, arguably, but certainly one of which completely had nothing to do with the, the cause, um, you know, and, and, and both of which largely, with, with retrospect, self-inflicted wounds. Um, and yet the appetite for those things um, was so strong. Uh, the global consensus that those were justified was very strong. Dissent was squelched. Um, and it, it, it changed a lot of the world. I mean, I think it, I'm sure it's shaped in the entire Middle East policy., uh, COVID-19 was the thing that then, I, I mean, it's another sort of huge, I mean, perhaps it will someday be seen as the defining event of the 21st century, um, not only for the virus itself and the impact, which is horrendous, but also the response and, and many self-inflicted wounds. I, you know, the school closure, um, the, the complete loss of control of, 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 of progress on poverty and on all the, all the issues you mentioned, such as all the other ailments that we're working on globally. Um, it's going to have all these sort of calamitous effects. And I think, I think the pendulum will swing on attitudes. And just like, you know, I remember, um, peop, you know, just like after 9-11, where the same person... They don't even know that their attitudes shifted, you know? They they felt strongly in support of Iraq War, but, you know, they're just an average person. Eight years later, they were strongly opposed. They knew it was a mistake, and you're, the way our human beings are, our memory changes. I remember myself as opposed to the Iraq War. Was I really opposed there? Is there any paper trail I was? You know, I think that we'll even shift our memories. I always said school closure was bad, somebody was telling me. And then I say, well, you know what? I got you this time because I got your tweet. I got your tweet. Your tweet don't go away, you know? <laughs> so now we finally have a paper trail, which actually might even be bad because to some degree human beings do need to forget what you are thinking to have mental progress, I think. It might be bad to have a paper trail anchoring you to your misguided belief. Um, anyway, I don't know where I was going with this other than to say that I think that the points you're making are going to be increasingly appreciated as true as time goes on, and five years from now, ten years from now, I think there'll be overwhelming consensus that met much of these interventions were the wrong intervention at the wrong time, which really was a self-inflicted wound. Maybe some of these things worked for short periods of time in some places, but in aggregate, it might have been calamitous.
1: Yeah, I, mean, I, I, think, I think that's right, unfortunately. Um, and there is a pattern in this kind of crisis, right? Uh, something bad happens. Uh, then uh, governments around the world find some technocrats and, you know, in the Iraq war, they said, here's some pictures, satellite photos of right. allegedly weapons of mass destruction or whatever. Right. In a pandemic, we get some modelers, they make some scary graphs. Uh, and then we, and then they say, we have to do this kind of unprecedented thing. And, and it's a crisis and there's no other option. I mean, that's another one of my rules. When someone says there is no alternative, there's always alternatives. There's often th- <laughs> thousands, thousands of alternatives, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and apart from just the bad outcomes of the thing that we decide to do in response to this crisis, um, and there's always going to be kind of benefits and harms of everything that we do, uh, there's also the kind of knock-on effects on on global society. And often one of the effects I didn't mention is, you know, a, a rising inequality between rich and poor. You know, billionaires have added incredible amounts to their wealth in the last two years. The poorest of the poor have got poorer, and that's going to have terrible outcomes in terms of health, in terms of social outcomes, you know, potentially in terms of wars and so on. Um, and all of these things are knock-on effects uh, of what we've done. Um, some of the other things you said, uh, you know, it's, um, is it good or bad that this is the first social media pandemic? Uh, I don't know. You know, on the one hand, social media can be great for meeting good people and getting, getting evidence quickly and so on. On the other hand, it's been disastrous and divisive and, um, you know, I, I don't think has helped genuine dialogue. Right. Um, and I think you're right that people's views change over time. Uh, and last time you mentioned last time you mentioned something about, about religion, and mm-hmm. you know, I'm I'm not a religious person, but I think religion does have some important kind of um, you know features that can be helpful. You know, one is that one is forgiveness. You know, many mm-hmm. religions teach forgiveness, mm-hmm. and I think we're going to need that um, as as societies, as a global community, as a scientific community, uh, when people come back to the idea that evidence-based public health is what we should aim for uh that COVID isn't the only problem mm-hmm. uh that maybe we're not so certain about some of these interventions i think you know each of us needs to forgive the people we previously disagreed with and try to try to find some kind of common ground um, and the second you know the second thing i think uh, that that's you know some religions can be helpful for is they often take the long view uh you know the long view of society and society has survived many pandemics you know many plagues, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of religious texts talk about the response to plagues, um, you know, hundreds or thousands of years ago.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, you know, so- society can get through uh, the virus, uh, but the response to the virus uh, is something that can be more difficult to get through. Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, we, and we need to get through that together somehow.
0: You alluded to this. I wonder if you'll talk about it more. The modelers. I mean, you know, what was that? Uh... <sighs> Um, war, wars have been launched over one person. Um, and, uh, the war against COVID was launched over one model. Um, you know, uh, thousand ships have set sail over one person. How many ships were set sail over one model? Um, what are your thoughts on, on the modelers, their ethical responsibility, their responsibility to acknowledge uncertainty? Um, how do you think about it?
1: Well, I think, I think one of the most urgent areas there is yeah, to develop a code of practice or an ethics of modeling. Um, because, you know, as you know, you know, modelies, models are kind of tautologies of their assumptions. They, they tell us what the world would look like if the assumptions were true.
0: Right. That they um, themselves but, picked. Yes. <laughs> sorry? That they themselves have picked. Yes.
1: yes that's right. And, and each assumption that you choose uh, has a kind of scientific validity, um, and it has also some ethical aspects and so on. Um, and, uh, you know, I think, it's clear that modeling has a lot to answer for here, and people said the model shows that this is going to be a disaster, so we must act in this certain way. But they can't tell us how to act. They can give us estimates of, you know, how much harm is going to occur, um, but they can't tell us what to do. To do that, we have to like have a whole range of disciplines, have a whole range of values, have a discussion about what to do. Um, and, and I guess the other thing to point out is that not only were many of them, you know, large overestimates. But in the post-vaccination era, they've been terribly uh, overestimating. You know, everyone said when the UK opens up on Freedom Day or whatever, it's going to be a complete disaster. So far, those models have massively over predicted what was going to happen. Now, in winter, it might be a different case. Perhaps we are going to see a large epidemic in the northern winter. I hope not. But maybe even in, even in vaccinated populations. Um, but the question is, are they underestimating the vaccines or are they overestimating the pathogen or both? Mm-hmm. Um, and and one of the one of the issues there, of course, is that uh, if the model produces a really catastrophic outcome, as they often do, then there's a strong temptation for uh, highly restrictive, highly harmful, sometimes authoritarian uh, responses. And we need to be mindful that um, it can, that that kind of um, yeah technocratic thinking can be very powerful, but that it doesn't necessarily match up to society. You know. Uh, those models, for example, often don't include the differences between rich and poor. I mean, they do have some things about household size and so on. Um, but just in general, they're going to, for an infectious disease like this, they're going to uh, perhaps over-predict the risks to rich people, you know, who can shield themselves off, protect themselves and so on. And they're going to under-predict the risks mm-hmm. in poor communities. Uh, and so, you know, that's, that's another, and of course, models can be adjusted to to include that. But then, you know, some of the variables that, that weren't included were, for example, um, the idea of reinfection, that coronaviruses almost always produce reinfection. So it's not it's not just going to be one curve like this. It's going to be like forever in the community. And another one is seasonality. You know, every every, every respiratory virus is seasonal. They have different <laughs> seasons and so on. And it takes a while to settle into a seasonal pattern. And none of none of the initial models included either of those variables. And until they do, and the modelers say, well, it will make it too complicated. You know, it would give us an output that wasn't so clean and so on. Yeah, I think, I'm sure that's true. But it would it's also give, give us a model, yeah. a model that's closer to reality. Yeah. Um, and if the reality is that it's going to be a seasonal virus that becomes endemic, then our response might be very different. Um, so being trapped in this kind of model instead of in reality and forgetting that there are differences between the assumptions in the model and what we actually see in the real world can be a major trap, uh, and I think can lead to sometimes um, some not great policy decisions.
0: Interesting. Where I am right at this moment is that, you know, there was a, many years ago, there was a, a version of a map on your phone. I think it was like the first version of Apple Maps, and people who used it for navigation around the city, they just got lost a lot. And I'll tell you, you, you only had to get lost once or twice before you said, I'm never going to use this app again. And that's how I feel about the modelers. <laughs> I just don't want to hear their opinion ever again because I think they were just too wrong. Um, but I guess maybe that's just where I'm in the moment. Um, they'll have to lure me back. I would love to see. I mean, I'd love to see, like any modeling. Now that we have all the data, can anyone create a model that actually fits what happened? Um, you know, and you can run simulations, etc. Um, but life is hard to model. Um, it's hard to model at an individual person level, and it's certainly hard, you know, you, how many times have I had a patient on, in the unit on three pressers? And we, can, we model you know, without numerical calculations, without mathematics, but we model with the mind of the doctor. Um, we model based on you know, all, all the indices we're looking at and how often we're wrong in all directions. They get worse, they get better. Um, you know, and uh, now here you're talking about modeling a very complex thing. I don't know. I don't know if their models are fit for purpose.
1: Yeah, that's right. And I'm sure sure there's room for improvement, but for for there to be improvement, we have to admit that there've been been some successes uh, and there's also been some failures. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I think that going back to kind of simple models, uh, I think it's not gonna be be something that's that's feasible in the long-term. And and one of the other things is that those models, we go to the modelers and we ask them, uh, what can we do to reduce the the, uh, incidence of this virus? So we ask them a certain kind of question. Uh, and, in, you know, that's their, that's their expertise. They provide, you know, answers to that question. Um, but it's not the only question that matters. And, you know, epidemiologists, they're not measuring liberty, you know. Um, they're often, sometimes they're measuring fairness, but, but you know, often not. They're kind of measuring whole population outcomes. And so, you know, and some important questions are, well, what will it cost for us as a society to implement those things that are kind of, you know, just the variables in the model? Um, and also who will benefit and who will be harmed, you know? uh, Who's gonna gonna have to bear the mental health harms of kind of lockdown and school closures and uh, whatever increases in domestic violence and so on that come from stay-at-home orders? And who's gonna have to bear those? And we need to be asking those those kind of deeper questions because um, even if the models produce an accurate measure of what the virus is gonna do, uh, that's only one thing that matters. Uh, And we need to be looking at, like I said, you know all public health outcomes and the long term, uh, and you know what it means to us to live in a free and fair society, and all you of know, those things yeah. need to be taken into account.
0: You've said it many times, both on the last appearance, on this appearance, liberty, liberty, liberty. Um, it resonates with me because I am an old-fashioned person, and I think there are more virtues than life. Uh, there are fates worse than death, uh, and liberty and is tied to it inextricably. And throughout history, you will read many people who would face death over loss of liberty, even losses of liberty that we may consider um, acceptable to live. Uh, That view has moved back and forth, I think. I worry now we're at a strange place on the pendulum, not everywhere, not throughout this population where I think liberty is still very important, particularly in America, where it's long been synonymous with this place, this earth. Um, But among a group of people The value of liberty has been subordinated to safetyism. Safety is the principal concern. It's so overwhelmingly the concern. It spilleth over into everything. It's safety both for your body, but for your mind. They want to be safe from ideas that offend me. I should be safe from, protected from. The offensive idea generator should be stifled. We want safety above all If Liberty has been subordinated so far down. Unfortunately, this group of people, at the moment, I think they have cultural power they don't have political power. Political power is still very divided, but cultural power is a force that allows you, cultural power is the force that I can tweet masks reduce COVID-19 by 80% and no one dare strike my tweet down. But if I were to tweet that, um, you know what? For somebody who had SARS-CoV-2 and recovered, there's actually no randomized control trial evidence that you need one dose or two dose. There is a quasi-experimental study with a key confounder, which is the decision to get vaccinated. But there's no. Ra- if I were to tweet that, there's a chance. I don't know, 10% chance. It is struck down by the power, by the cultural power. Even though one is truthful, my claim, and the other claim is not truthful. So I guess my question to you is, how do you come? How do you deal with that problem, which is? we see, I mean, Twitter is the seat of cultural power, I think, and the attitudes expressed of hashtag zero COVID is a culturally powerful position. I think it's a deeply unpopular position. I think they're gonna face it at every exit poll. They're gonna get destroyed in elections to come and that the destruction will have consequences for people's lives that are also unintended consequences of the misguided policy, because I'm actually a left to center person. I want some progressive policies so that's gonna get lost in this. But I think, I don't know, how do you deal with a culture that liberty, freedom of ideas, it doesn't mean what it meant when we were growing up. It's, it's, an, it's an endangered species.
1: Yeah, that's right. So there's, there's lots of things there. I mean, I guess the first one is um, yeah, how, how different people feel those restrictions. I saw this great quote the other day, uh, those who do not struggle don't feel their chains. Mm-hmm. You know, and, I think, and I think we've seen that in the pandemic where rich people who can work from home and lock mm-hmm. themselves away, well, they're not going to suffer very much from kind of public health restrictions, whereas other people who either have to go out or mm-hmm. just want to go out and live, they're going to feel it very keenly, and so there's going to be different effects across the population. Um, and yeah, I, I think liberty is one value among many. Um, I'm not a favor of unlimited liberty, uh, obviously. And, and sometimes people sometimes people should kind of curtail what they do, and sometimes re- reducing freedom a little bit can be justified by public health outcomes. Um, but yeah, I think uh, being being scared of having freedom, um, if we're in that situation, then we're forgetting that, that there are also benefits of freedom. Uh, there's benefits for you as an individual. And I tend to think that there's benefits for society too, uh, you know, freedom of expression, freedom of interaction. And what I think what's remarkable about this pandemic response is, uh, as I saw you know, one of my colleagues, uh, you know, Peter Godfrey Smith, a philosopher in Sydney, saying, you know, some of the freedoms that have been curtailed have been so, so normal, so every day, that no one even thought they needed protection. You know, the civil liberties people weren't out there mm-hmm. um, saying they need protection because just things like going to the park, um, going to have coffee with your family member, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, being present at, you know, the birth of new children or at marriages, as you mm-hmm. mentioned earlier, or at deaths, uh, being able to mourn the dead. Uh, you know, these are, these are really basic liberties, even before kind of political and civil liberties and so on. These are basic human freedoms uh, of interaction that really matter. Um, and, yeah, I think there are things that matter more to people than safety. There are absolutely things like that. Um, and I, I agree with you. I think we're going to find out that, you know, maybe you're alluding to the, that recent kind of election in, yeah. in America, right, where yeah. I, th- I think we found out that depending on, say, parents to remain silent when they've suffered so much uh, mm-hmm. under these restrictions, depending on this so-called you know, silent majority. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, silence is a fragile thing. Uh, and uh, I think we're gonna find out that a lot of, a lot of people have uh, felt these restrictions very keenly. Um, and that's one of the reasons why we always said in pandemic planning documents that the restrictive measures need to be as less restrictive as possible for the shortest period of time. Mm-hmm. Partly that's because they have a use by date. People like mm-hmm. people just aren't going to comply if we leave them on for too long. Mm-hmm. Um, but partly that's because they have harms. They're, they're they're intruding on really key aspects of human lives, mm-hmm. uh, and so we need we need a way of saying, okay, it's over now. You mm-hmm. know, people can go back to being you know more free.
0: That's really well said. Yeah, I think that. Um... We have seen evidence of it. You know, if you are if you came out guns blazing in favor of school closure, the voters will make you pay for that, especially when it will become glaringly obvious that that served no purpose other than, um, I don't know what's I mean, other than s- alleviating anxieties. Um, if you're the side that said we really ought to mask a two-year-old and if you can't keep that mask on when the plane takes off, we're going to throw you off the plane, even if your child suffers from autism, uh... I think you're going to pay the price for that cruelty, which is an act of cruelty that I don't agree with. And if you're the party that said, we're going to separate you from your father when he dies, even though we've got this mountain of PPE because of safety, you'll pay the price. I worry to some degree, though, that when the dictator takes away your liberty, you know who to hate. But when you are inculcated into believing that the loss of liberty was keeping people safe, even if that empirically may not be the case, your hatred may be misplaced and it may it may you may not know where to put the hatred just as as we've seen with when you have wealth inequality and the stagnating wealth inequality and you don't see whose policies are creating it you may even vote for them thinking that they're the ones to minimize wealth inequality when they have created it similarly you won't vote for the right side when it comes to the people who took away your liberty um even though they were the ones that took it away for no good purpose uh so you know this is the problem this is i guess always the mystery of politics is to whom the blame goes Um, I just want to ask you about this last thing a colleague of mine was recently telling me. And this is what really stuck with me because I I didn't have a good answer. Um, You know, this is a country that uh, we're pro, I guess, our our American Academy of Pediatrics, the experts, obviously, they're the expert. I'm not the expert. You know, I've been told that many times on Twitter. What do you know? You're no expert. Uh, They say that you ought to mask two-year-olds, which is, uh, you know, news to me. You know, news to me. I didn't re. I, I, we were about to publish a thirty thousand world review article on every masking study ever done. Uh, I, I I I didn't know. I didn't come across any such studies. But, uh, so, but spoiler alert. I, I hope that doesn't break the embargo. Um, okay. Um, this person has to go on a long international flight. This person's not from this country, and they're going back to where they came, their home uh, or their their ancestral home. Um, you know, to meet their parents, who they have not seen since the beginning of the pandemic. And this person happens to have a very young child, uh, a two-year-old child. But this child, um, they have more than one kid. And one kid, you know, was always sort of able to do it. And this other kid is a different kid, not able to do it. And this person was telling me um, that uh, they're practicing. They're practicing like Pavlovian conditioning to train the kid so that when they go on the plane, they just need him to comply for a little bit of time. Because when you take off, then suddenly you're in international airspace. You're subject to World Health Organization rules, and it's under six, you get a you know you're, they can't really do anything. But we've seen video after video of some you know empowered crusader flight attendant who decides enough's enough. You know this 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 troublemaker kid is going to get you know treated like a cop would treat you know throw this person out you know rough policing. Um, so I guess. I don't know where to start on this question, but like, oh, I just had one follow-up question, which is like, what if the two-year-old falls asleep during the takeoff? And my question was, because again, even the, even the most draconian proponents of the two-year-old masking have clauses in their bodies saying, if the child is asleep, it is a suffocation risk, you ought not do it. What do they do? And then this person was telling me that for the flight, they, it doesn't matter. You got to keep the mask on, even the sleeping child, even if that is an increased risk. Um, And so I just thought to myself that this is a, uh, this did not have to happen. COVID-19 didn't make you do this. This is a cruelty you have created. And you might as well slaughter a goat if you're going to do this kind of nonsense. And uh, I guess I get, I don't know, I get irritated, not just because I think it's crazy, but because smart people tell me that this has some value and that really gets under my skin. I'm like, you are a dean of a public health school. Why are you justifying this? You should say this is crazy. Thoughts?
1: Um. Well, yeah, I guess on the first thing that, you know, people's rage is going to have to come out somewhere and that's going to be unpredictable. I totally agree. Uh, but then on this question of, yeah, we didn't have to be here. I agree. Um, where, when people say this happened due to COVID you know, I always say, what do you mean? You know, this, this didn't happen due to the virus. We had, we had choices about what we could do. Right. You know, there were people who, who decided to implement these things. Um, and I, those, uh, those empowered crusaders, as you described them, um, yeah, they can be dangerous people. You know, there's, there's the expression, no zealot like a convert. You know, people have suddenly become converted to these kinds of uh, these measures, even though they're based on no evidence um, and they're not even aware of kind of the potential benefits and harms. And, you know, if, if you look at what happens in, in um, you know, unfree uh, societies, say, for example, East Germany. Well, about 30 percent of people in east germany were informants to the secret police mm-hmm. you know? uh, and i'm sure they thought they were doing the right thing mm-hmm. um, and it, it does you know it worries me that uh people who maybe don't even understand what they're doing are very quick to tell others what to do uh, and get angry uh, about about what other people are doing and you know Again, I think that's an aspect of liberty where we need to be able to leave each other alone when, it, when it's not a matter of life and death or major or major harm. Mm-hmm. We need to be able to let other people do their thing and you do your thing. And of course, of course, when it comes to infectious diseases, people say, oh, but uh, but they might spread it to me and so on. But, um, you know, we've taken a lot of steps uh, to kind of reduce the spread of, of infections and we should only do things that actually work and that we have evidence that actually work. And once we've taken a whole range of steps already, every additional thing that we do is only making a tiny difference. And sometimes people get very upset very angry about tiny differences. Um, but we, should, we need to take a step back and, uh, and, and look at um, the things that really matter. And maybe the things that don't make such a difference, maybe we need to let them go.
0: I was in a store recently and there was like one patron wasn't wearing a mask, but this gentleman looked like he suffered from many medical problems and was in a uh, motorized wheelchair and etc. cetera. Um, and then somebody in a mask came by and passed and then turned and there was a confrontation. And I got a little bit nervous. This is America, you know, and you see any confrontation, you gotta, you know, look for the exit door. I mean, this is really, this is, this is the kind of world we're living in, this America. And I got nervous and then they started arguing about the mask. And I was like, well, you know, I was like, the bangladesh trial had just been pre-printed i was like should i interject then i thought you know i'm not a, am smart enough to know hey i'm gonna stay out i'm gonna stay they're probably not interested in the, the interaction coefficients and you know those kind of the, the p-value they're not, probably not interested in the pre-specified primary endpoint okay i'll stay out of this one um okay but they're arguing and then i thought to myself like you know the argument itself is like an aerosol generating procedure <laughs> um it, the argument itself is probably like the delta argument like the, even confronting and having the argument is probably increasing the cumulative probability of SARS-CoV-2 spread, if that were your goal, uh, not that this is a war I would support, and also, you know, tearing citizen against citizen. And I thought, you know, it's a sad state we're in. And then I thought, you know, it's really kind of like the, the stuff of antiquity um, that, you know, people in, in all plagues, you know, it was the neighbor that did it to me. You know, it was that person did it to me. And It's just sort of this human compulsion to, um, to blame one person else out there. I guess the last thing I wanted to tell you, and then I'll give you the last word, was, um, you know, I'm an old-fashioned person in a lot of respects. I realize I I always think of myself as a young person, but you know, maybe not anymore. Who knows? Um, And and when I think about like the things one must be true to, for me, the number one thing is duty and conscience, and and everything else is subordinate to that. And I worry we live in a world where the number one thing is success and everything is subordinate to that. And what do I mean? And there's a tension. And the tension comes when people are pushing, the majority of people, the professional class, the people your peers with, when they're pushing in a direction that you and your conscience believe is wrong. You have a tension. If your goal is success, it is to go with the flow and to validate them and speak up from their behalf and to support them and to retweet their stuff and to like it, or at a minimum, just to stay quiet and stay out of it. But if you believe that this life has something more than just your material success, and that's more, about more than that, and, and as I believe, it is about duty and your conscience, then I think that I have a different obligation. My obligation is, um, on my deathbed, I dare not feel as if I could have said something and I chose not to say something out of self-preservation or out of because it will advance my career, or something like that. Um, I worry that th- there's this, that shift in value is more pervasive than I thought, that more people think success is the goal of life and not all these other things more people think safety is the goal of life and not liberty um and i didn't see it i didn't know these values were sliding out from under me over the last you know 20 years of my life anyway i those are just rambling thoughts but i'm i'm happy to hear your thoughts on any of these issues and anything we didn't cover that you want to talk about
1: yeah well so um i I think yeah there's there's a lot of things there and uh people have been living in fear for a long time uh, and, and fear generates this anger um, and we need to be able to calm that down. And as I said, last time, yeah, start speaking the language of hope rather than the language of fear. Mm-hmm. And that means kind of not being angry with one's neighbor and, and, and also keeping in mind, you might be wrong. You know, Often it isn't your neighbor who gave it to you or who's doing the wrong thing and they're, they're fighting their own battles. So, mm-hmm. so you can hope in most cases kind of leave them alone. Um, but yeah, look, It's hard to do the right thing. Nobody does the right thing all the time. Um, uh, But it is extremely difficult when everyone around you is saying one thing uh, and you know, sometimes you're a person with expertise or whatever, you know that something's not quite right um, and maybe they they shouldn't be as certain as they are. Uh, And when that's combined with kind of hunting people down and attacking them for holding views that don't align with the majority. Uh, well, then it's even harder and it can be a difficult, you know, it's a difficult, it has been a difficult decision for me and for others to decide when to speak up and when to remain quiet. Um, and sometimes, sometimes it's the right time to speak up. Sometimes you have to wait for the storm to pass because things are really kind of out of control and you can't necessarily fix everything. Mm-hmm. And so we come to really the final phase of this pandemic, I hope soon, Mm -hmm. Uh, where not only do we have to start kind of winding down interventions, uh, we have to start um, telling people that they can be free again. And I, I look around my city of Melbourne, I see people coming out for the first time in a long time, and they don't know how to, they don't know how to interact anymore. They don't know how to be free. And we need to learn that again. And we need to kind of forgive each other and look after each other, you know, during that period. And um, because there's been a lot of animosity, um, people with very divergent views, people trying to enforce their views on others, and so on, we need to find a way to to speak to one another again, to communicate, to listen to a range of ideas, and to find things uh, that we can agree on. Which I, you know, which I think and I hope, uh, you know, are actually more than we realize uh, that many people do want to have um, a society, do want to mix with others other human beings. Uh, They want it to be, you know, fairly safe, uh, but they want to live a a rich and full life. um, And it's been hard to do that for the last two years. And I hope we can all do that again
0: a little bit more. Zebiam Rozhik, it's a real pleasure to get to talk to you and uh, I'll put this up soon. And thanks so much for doing this. And, uh, you know, I hope we get to have another conversation in the future and hopefully further we're past some of these things, but uh, always enjoy this.
1: Thanks. Uh, it's great to be here. And uh, I'd like to meet in person
0: sometime. Ah, oh, of course. Oh, it'll be my pleasure. Thanks for listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session was produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. Plenary Session is not medical advice. The views and opinions expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it. Until next time.